Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is Writers on Film only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Robert P. Colker and Nathan Abrams, the authors of a new biography on Stanley Kubrick. It looks like the definitive biography, Kubrick, an odyssey. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, send the review and subscribe. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. And remember, there's also a sister podcast, Cinema Natalia, which I present and which is an English language journey into Italian cinema. Uh, so be sure and check that out wherever good podcasts can be found. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. very first book I seriously read as a, a, a young teenager, I must have been about 13, about cinema was Cinema of Loneliness. It was an absolute inspiration to me. So I wanted to express my gratitude for that. And also in that book, you you are already devoting a chapter to Kubrick. Kubrick's one of your main directors and, and the way you're going. So, so what's your relationship with Kubrick? And when did you first start watching his cinema? When did you first develop this interest? Well, I saw, I think my first Kubrick film that I saw was Paths of Glory at MoMA. And um, this would have been in the early 60s, probably mid-60s. Um, and um, it struck me 
immediately as something extraordinary. Um, when I did Cinema of Loneliness, I was clear about how Kubrick fit in what was then the overall theme of the uh, of the of the book. That that theme sort of got submerged in subsequent editions as more uh, directors were added and others were dropped. But the Kubrick chapter kept getting longer in uh, in subsequent editions. It was clear that there was more than a simple film fans attraction to Kubrick. There was something oddly personal, even though I obviously never met the man. Powerful enough that I wanted to go further, deeper, and the idea for doing a biography started in the early 1990s and, in fact, corresponded with Leon Vitale, uh, faxed a few times and until I got a letter from Julian Sr., his, uh, one of his um, Warner Brothers protectors, who incidentally just died recently, um, shutting the door, basically telling me to go away and stop bothering them. So I went away and stopped bothering them. And uh, then when I met um, Nathan, and we talked and thought and talked and thought some more, we eventually decided to do a book on Eyes Wide Shut, and that turned out very well. We decided to take it one step further and do the life. Do the life. I'm a bit curious to, as to why the door was shut. Was it just like, I don't want to bother, I don't want, it's too intrusive, or was there any reason given? Oh, um... Oh, because I um, was um, bold enough to uh, ask for uh, access to the archives. This was ah. before the archives were, were public, and uh, that was really the last straw for them. Really a similar question for Nathan. What was your first experience with Kubrick? Before I answer that, I'm going to say, Bob, imagine if you had been given access back then. You'd have had to do all that archival research on your own, because in the early 80s, what, I was like eight <laughs> <laughs> Which is a you imagine all that digging back then with no sense of um um of cataloging the the, uh, the archive as it was yeah my first experience of watching a Kubrick film in the cinema was Full Metal Jacket in 1987 ah same here so that maybe puts us at a similar age so I was 15 I'm not sure I went to see it as a Kubrick film but more as a war film subsequently I did deliberately go to see Eyes Wide Shut as a Kubrick film so that's the one I really anticipated um. I was more adults then and went to see that uh, the day it came out in the UK. And um, it occurs to me that the other film that I saw in the cinema closest to the point that you could in the UK was A Clockwork Orange, which I owned on a um, VHS bought in Amsterdam because obviously it wasn't available in the UK, but I did go to see that. Um, I think 2000 was when it was released finally or uh, again in, in the UK. So my prehistory uh, with Kubrick is much shorter, um, but really my interest was much more generated. I mean, I'd always admired him when I moved here to Bangor University and was asked to teach a new module. So I put Kubrick because he's perfect for 11 week semester. Back then there were only 12 films. Now there's 13, because we have a decent copy of um, Fear and Desire. And he covers every genre. And the one genre he didn't do, fortunately, is Westerns. So um, it was perfect for my purposes. And it was really that that led um, led me to Bob. And here we are. And how did that collaboration, well, you've already said you, you worked on a Eyes Wide Shut book together, but how, how... 
How did that collaboration begin? Nathan um, and others um, had to convince me about the film because on first um, on first look, I was really put off by the film. I thought it was a disaster, quite frankly. Mm. And it took me many viewings and many conversations with Nathan and with other friends to get to the film's soul. And once I got there, it, like all of Kubrick's films, didn't leave and kept gnawing. So Nathan introduced me to the archives. I did a little scrounging, but I can't put hold a candle to the way Nathan works in, in, uh, in archival research. It's just something that he does miraculously well and that I don't. But we put a lot of material together. We collaborated on the writing just perfectly, I think. The biggest disappointment was that the book was published by Oxford University Press, who decided not to publicize it. It sort of disappeared. Mm. It reappeared because our current publishers, Faber and Pegasus, the publishers of the uh, biography, have used the few review quotations that did come out about Eyes Wide Shut on the back of the book, on the back of the bio. And that, I think, has drawn more uh, more readers to it. So mm-hmm. it's had sort of a second life. When you approach the idea of doing a biography together, and you've already sort of mentioned this in a way, doing it as two writers. Was that the division of labor then, Bob? Were you doing the, was Nathan doing the archival research and you were doing more the framing and the writing? No, no. Um, In terms of the archival research, I did some, but in terms of the writing, this was um, total collaboration. You would be going back and forth. You would be having discussions. Oh, sure. Yeah. Emailing, sending drafts back and forth, correcting each other adding, subtracting. We worked well together. There must have been at, at times disagreements about, I don't know, judgments of films or or even disagreements about interpretations of, of certain moments in Kubrick's life. Was, was that ever a problem or, or were they positive and uh, nourishing? I can't remember any blistering disagreements. Nathan? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, nothing blistering. I think we... We, I mean, I can give one example of where we perhaps um, we may, took a time to reconcile our views, which is on the um, value of Spartacus to right. the development of Kubrick's career, which I see as absolutely essential to understanding the Kubrick that that became the Kubrick after Spartacus. And um, one of the arguments we would have is Bob would say Spartacus lacks irony, which I accept. Um, but not all his films before Spartacus had irony, and the ones that did have irony were, were because he worked on Spartacus. So I think there's there's an importance to value the role that that played in, in the Stanley Kubrick becoming the Stanley Kubrick that most people know and love. And the interesting thing about doing this biography is there's different Stanley Kubricks. There's the one in The Photographer, there's the one who made Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, then there's the one who makes The Killing, James B. Harris, and there's the one who's married um, to Christiane with with Plavs of Glory. And then there's the mature Kubrick after Spartacus. And even then that changes. So I think people come with their idea of who Kubrick is and then it, and, and then export it backwards rather than read it forwards. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously we might disagree over the salience of a particular factoid or whether we should include something or not. And, but yeah, it's a very smooth collaboration. I, I think one of the things that assisted our collaboration and 
part answer to the previous question that my dog really wanted to answer was <laughs> I, I come from a history background and moved into film and Bob started off with literature and moved into film. And I think I think those strengths and and complementary abilities reflect in the in the in the working process and that I have the patience to go to archives I enjoyed all that and Bob has a, a an encyclopedic knowledge of film that I you know, he'll forget more than I ever know and you know so those complementary abilities meant you know I we didn't have to reinvent the wheel and do everything mm. you know I could draw upon what he knew and and also I live closer to the archives so I could go do that stuff and I could go contact the ones around the world to find additional material. So, yeah, I think, and, and it enables us to write a book doubly quickly. Which is all, always useful. Exactly, exactly. And there's always a feeling, as I was reading the book, there was always a feeling of a sort of the road not taken as well. That You know, in terms of Spartacus, that was true, but also in terms of One-Eyed Jacks and in terms of other things, that was a sense of, like, if if something, if a lesson, if he learned a lesson, it might be a positive lesson, I'm good at doing this, but it also might be a negative lesson, I'm definitely not going to do that. I mean, the... Perhaps one of the best examples of that is fear and desire, where he's the lessons he took away from that were were a, a very mixed bag indeed, and he he sort of came to regret them. Um, uh, what what what's your own uh, sort of take on on that film? Didn't he say pain is a good teacher? Because I think the reception on that film was less than he would have liked. I mean, but you know, it gave him the experience of shooting a film. I think he said the best way to learn to make a film is to go and do it. And that's exactly what he did with almost zero training. Um, mm. And he made plenty of mistakes on there. The interesting thing is he repeated them again, on, in some senses, on Killer's Kiss in terms of technical processes. But narrative-wise, um, he, he did learn to be a bit more subtle because in, in Fear and Desire, as we say in the book, I think he showed his hand too much. You know, the chess master revealed his strategy in advance. It's not immediately obvious in Killer's Kiss. You know, Killer's Kiss is a if you want to say a better film than Fear and Desire, but not considered one of his greatest, but maybe by the killing and Pars of Glory, you know, he's he's learnt um, to conceal his hand better. One of the periods in Kubrick's life that we learned most about and were most revealing uh, were the what what he was doing in the early 1950s, which I think no one else has commented upon in as detailed as we have, as Nathan has, in discovering the letters and the stories that he wrote and um, the uh, his life in the village and his marriages. Um, he was an extraordinarily active individual for uh, for many, many years. He was bi-coastal. He went from New York to Los Angeles. Fear and Desire was filmed in, in the hills outside of Los Angeles. And it was also a time of disappointments. He made two features and three documentaries and was poor as a church mouse, didn't make a penny. And he was saved literally by um, James Harris, his, um, who became his producer and who had money and who relieved Kubrick of the constant searching for material, um, took a lot of the burden and allowed Kubrick to be Kubrick or to become Kubrick, which he does. Uh, in The Killing and in Pads of Glory. Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss are fascinating films, uh, but they are films of um, of a tyro 
um, working things out, trying to figure out where he is as a filmmaker. Uh, whereas in The Killing, and especially in Paths of Glory, the discovery is made. There are flashes of of brilliance in in both those films, but yeah. they don't, they're not sustained. Yeah, absolutely. In Paths of Glory, I think is probably one of my favorite films, not just of Kubrick's, but but perhaps of all time. I love the stories as well of him, uh, you know, earning money by um, doing high stakes poker games and uh, chess. There is a chess player in uh, in Paths in uh, The Killing. And he recreates um, Kubrick recreates his um, his chess parlor where he uh, where he played in New York. Yeah, and the, but there's also sort of a daring in the young man of like, especially sitting down and playing poker for lots of money when you don't have much money as a way of financing your household. John's talking about chutzpah. Chutzpah, I think we use the word in the book, does define a, a, a young Kubrick, probably an older one too. But there is, you know, there, there is a self belief at times combined with a boldness that I'm going to do this and I'm going to get this done. You know, him sitting there thinking in the cinema before he's made a film, I can make films better than this and doing it. There's the chutzpah and sending the photograph to Look magazine in 1945. And then, and then persevering. I mean, it, one of the things that, that hopefully becomes clear in the book is that he didn't always get his finance guaranteed. You know, even once he signed with Warner Brothers, he's not going to get every project greenlit. So up to that point, he, he has to have tremendous self-belief to keep going, trying to get the financing for each project. You know, Spartacus was handed to him. One-Eyed Jax was handed to him, but as he suspected, that was probably never for him to direct. Um, but the the films before that, he had to beg, borrow, and still, and he had to do the same with Lolita and with Doctor Strange Love and with Two Thousand and One. So it isn't just this kind of. It looks like a trajectory where each film is better than the last, and Kubrick's on the up, and nothing can stop him. But I don't think he would have seen the reality that way. So it it, it keeps tremendous self belief to keep him going. You know, every time he's getting knocked down, because he, you know he's at the height of his powers with the Two Thousand and One, and he's emerged from Doctor Strange Love with his critical esteem. He can he can make a movie with with money he uh, that makes money, and then he you know look at the the initial critical reception of Two Thousand and One. Which really, you know, he never goes to a music, uh, a movie premiere again after that because it really deals him a blow. So just at the point where you think he's at the height of his powers, nothing can stop him, he'll get a, a whack. And I think that takes self-belief to keep going, you know, and to not not just give up or not just go with an easy product that you know, you know, let's look at what the cycle is. Let's just do exactly a cookie-cutter movie of that cycle, which kind of largely guaranteed some sort of return. So yeah, I think that definitely defines um, defines him through his career. That's what's interesting about the relationship that he has with Steven Spielberg, which emerges uh, very well in your book. I think I haven't seen that relationship delineated in such detail before and with such uh, precision. That that ambiguity that Kubrick is constantly going, God damn it, I wish I could make a film like you and make all this, this money, but you know and he probably knows that he's never gonna he's never gonna do that he's never gonna compromise or hit that zeitgeist moment quite in the same way there are it's interesting there's sort of two operative dichotomies in kubrick's life one in the films which is the uh, tension between reality and what he called the interesting reality is good he said interesting is better and in his working life there's the dichotomy between what you said the knowledge that he makes films that he well knows are not going to be 
enormously popular at first outing and the desire to do that. And the relationship with Spielberg, I think, is a combination of those dichotomies. There's no indication that the friendship was anything but mutual and sincere. But I think part of the relationship was that Kubrick wanted to buddy up with someone who made films that were enormously popular at first go, as opposed to making films that only became enormously popular years after they appeared. And and even extending a professional relationship in terms of uh, becoming a producer producer of AI and, and sort of handing it off to Spielberg, which ultimately occurred posthumously. I think he recognises as well that, that Spielberg can make films in in not in less than half the time you know kubrick's th- dithering over um arian papers in 93 meanwhile um spielberg has shot and is editing jurassic park whilst shooting schindler's list and um there was a recognition and that's in part why he handed him ai that he could shoot this quicker and uh, one of the things he joked was that um the reason why he couldn't use a real child actor in AI is because um, by the time he'd done with him, he'd have a beard and an Adam's apple. Uh, and and so I think there was that recognition that, that he was a slow worker, but he couldn't do anything about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, even in The Shining, Danny Lloyd seems noticeably older at certain scenes than 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 others. You know, he's just he's, he's aging as the shoot progresses. You know, on that note, I didn't realise this until a visit to the archives more recently. Um, they had two pairs of shoes for him. Um, the, 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 I think, you know, the ones he wore and the ones he might have grown into. So they, they did plan ahead for, for The Shining in recognition of just he wasn't a quick worker i mean these things are are quite consistent as well when it comes to you know again going through the earlier period there's always this sort of attempt to hunt up a story attempt to find a book or a literary work like lolita that he can that he can work with there's always this slightly torrid relationship with writers um jim thompson uh, is an early example of that as well and that sort of continues all the way to the end and Frederick Raphael and, and and Brian Aldiss and others. It would have been so much simpler if he'd if he'd sort of just had that uh, original screenplay in himself. Well, it, it, if you're asking, did, could he do an original screenplay himself? Is that the question? I, I guess so. Yeah. He was clear that he couldn't do that. He was clear that he needed a literary reference or literary foundation uh, on which to build a film. That was true for everything except the two earlier, two earliest films, Fear and Desire and, and Killer's Kiss. Do you think it was the experience of doing those films that made him think, right, I, I need to have something to, these don't work as stories, these don't work as characters? I, I expect so, um, because he kept writing ideas for stories. Um, a lot of them, frankly, silly ideas. At the same time, ideas about marriage and jealousy and sexuality that would become eyes wide shut many, many years later. He discovers uh, Schnitzler and he discovers Stefan Zweig and he sees in those writers themes developed that he was only tinkering with. Mm. And so he wants to make a film of a Stefan Zweig story, The Burning Secret, um, and gets almost to the production stage before it's dropped. And Schnitzler is with him 
throughout his life until at the end of his life he finally gets to uh, to do the film. I, I wanted to come in there to reflect that it's every stage of Kubrick's process. Had he been able to generate an original screenplay or work from one? Had he been able to not research as intensively? Had he not been able to exhaust every possibility um, before actually, um, you know, editing? then yeah, everything would have gone quicker. So it isn't just the screenplay that's at issue. Every stage of the process is laborious. I think the quickest he took to make a film in his mature years was what, two years? Um, from from announcement to release. So everything is laborious. I, I think in part because he didn't have James B. Harris to help him out, and in part because of his character. One thing it just recurs to me that we did argue over argue we disagreed over is the extent to which Kubrick was a writer Bob gave him more credit than I did I I, I said he's um a, a good adapter at best like so he did adapt a, a rewriter rather than a writer in that sense so he would sort of put things together and rephrase things but not actually um generate that stuff yeah, he couldn't generate an original script. I mean, by his own admission, he's a terrible writer. And if you look through some of the early stuff, it's, you know, he could add ideas to a film. And the early stuff, some of it has a plot, there's characterization, there's there's this script, there's scraps here or there. You know, he did Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Napoleon, and um, Aryan Papers on his own. He did um, the, the the screenplay. I don't know if we can call what was Napoleon a screenplay as such. It probably would have had further work on it. And by his own words, that was because, at least in the case of the of, of Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, they were easy to adapt. They were, they were very screenplay-like anyway. And so he, he didn't have that in him as much as he would have liked to. And um, so, so he always then needed to work with other people and preferably writers and preferably writers who weren't the writers of the source material. It's interesting because I'm kind of thinking how, um, you know, wishing that Kubrick would hurry up, so to speak, or, you know, or not do, is kind of a bit like wishing Jackson Pollock was a little bit neater. I mean, it, it's it's part and parcel of their art, of, of what they, you know, if he did, you know, if he did speed up, then you wouldn't necessarily get Barry Lyndon. You wouldn't necessarily get 2001 A Space Odyssey. The process is, is in, well, well, I mean, let me phrase that as a question. Is the process intrinsic to the work or is it something which perhaps later on in his career starts to hamper the work? We simply wouldn't have the films we have if he had done them any other way. I mean, it's a sort of circular argument. He worked slowly, and the result of that slow work was the careful, uh, meticulous, thoughtful, resonant films that uh, that resulted. If they were one-offs, I mean, how many times do we go back to Spielberg's version of AI as opposed to going back to The Shining or Full Metal Jacket or Eyes Wide Shut or any, any Kubrick film? There's a difference. Spielberg's facility results in, often enough, facile films. Not every time, but much of the time. Kubrick's different kind of, facil of, of, of facility is the result of very careful planning, very thoughtful, and full of doubt, I think, in the process, in, in the best sense, in the process of coming up with a film. Doubt in the sense that he's always questioning what's here, how is it going to be filmed, what is cinematic about 
what I'm reading and what I'm writing. How are the actors going to do it? How can I get the most perfect shot and so forth? And the result of that is the, the answer is, yes, you did all of that. Everything worked out. I've just been working on a, a book about Terence Malick, a biography as well. And um, I was looking at the chapter on Days of Heaven. Uh, and there's a big argument about, you know, it took two years to do the post-production. My argument after everything is just like, yeah, but it's one of the best films from the 1970s, which is an era not exactly poor with with very good films. So if it took him two years, good on him. You know, it, it, the end product is, is is proof of argument, really. Another, th another aspect of Kubrick's life, and this is what makes the idea of a, a, a new biography so fascinating and interesting, I think your book's so rewarding, is that there is such a, a, a sort of legend around Kubrick as well. There's so many stories, there's so many ideas, all of which you sort of take into account and take into, uh, uh, and, and at times challenge and, and defeat. And yet at the same time, there are certain seeds of truth to these legends. One of the most famous ones is his fear of flying. And I, I was really interested in learning in your biography how early on that actually, and how early on and how categorical that was and how, how kind of almost like medical it was really. It wasn't just, you know, a, a neurosis as such. It was, it was kind of manifested itself physically as well. It's a very rational choice. I mean, he flew planes, he monitored air traffic control. It's like with a lot of facts about, about Kubrick, it, depending on what position you want to take, you can interpret the fact that he didn't like flying as a phobia or as a rational fear based on sound analysis and experience of flying. And I think we found a lot of situations like that where you could take a fact and read Kubrick as a monster and we weren't trying to give that impression. Um, we were just trying to show <laughs> there's different sides. Um, to, to the individual. What surprised me actually in the last few weeks is just how little a lot of people know about Kubrick. Um, maybe we we just surround ourselves with the aficionados and um, the consequences that we forget that a lot of people only know those few things. You know, they might not, you know, that he wasn't American or that he wasn't Jewish or that he was Jewish, you know, that he wasn't British. It, it's so uh, that there's a lot of interesting things swirling around out there. And that was one of the hopes of the book was to puncture some of the mythology, but also to bring to a wider readership a lot of the work that had been done, but had been confined to the specialists. And in the end, that sort of legend kind of damages his reputation to some degree as well. If you can't, if if it, if he just becomes a silly sort of collection of silly quirks, and he did 120 takes of a certain scene, and the the story about Shelley Duval, which you also I think has been effectively countered by, uh, in other places as well as your biography. Well, the. Um... The myth of the multiple takes is ultimately boring <laughs> in the sense that there are other directors. I mean, William Wyler was infamous for doing a lot of takes and it didn't become a big thing. I mean, for him, it became a kind of joke. Mm. Um, for Kubrick, it became a kind of mark of one of his obsessions. He did a lot of takes because he needed to see the kind of performance that would fit into what he perceived as the whole of the film. Um, he did a lot of takes because if an actor didn't know his or her lines, he kept doing it over and over until they did. He didn't much care for actors in the sense that he had to deal with personalities that would perhaps 
bump against what he wanted and what he needed. And so one of the things he did with the multiple takes was wear them down until they got to the core of what he needed for the film. He was not brutal. He wasn't a sadist. He just made the actors work. Looking at those performances as well, again, uh, you know, to, using the Days of Heaven uh, analogy, they, they, I mean, those he brought out extremely memorable performances. You know, you look at his films and you think of Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. You think of Ryan O'Neill, uh, Matthew Modine, Peter Sellers, of course, and George C. Scott in Doctor Strangelove. Uh, you know, some of these are sort of career best performances in, in filmographies that are quite large. I think the issue with Kubrick is um, it depends what position you want to take. Some people say the ends didn't justify the means. And others say, yeah, the 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 means the uh, the ends did justify the means. It's interesting about Kubrick is that for those who know him, he's a divisive figure. So some would say he was brutal and sadistic, sadistic, and there are instances where perhaps his treatment of actors or was less than perfect. I mean, you know, we we did mention instances from two thousand and one with the with the stunt man doing the oxygen scenes, and the amount of pain and torture that um i shouldn't laugh that um, malcolm mcdowell went through on a clockwork orange and uh there's other examples so you know it's i mean obviously we've written a book about kubrick and we we, we like his films but it's a hard one to say actually scraping malcolm mcdowell's eyelids justified the performance he got out of it <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one um but you're right it is a very memorable performance i think what we've discovered there is a bit of Marmite to, to Kubrick and, and his reputation, um, films aside. And you often, you make the point as well that there are occasions where an actor turns up and just does something sort of in three takes and gets it straight away, like Vincent D'Onforio in uh, Full Metal Jacket. And uh, and he's like, yep, that's it. That's We've got it. You know, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and there could be, a, and he gives them that sort of um, fist on the shoulder. Um, there could be loads of reasons why... Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A takes that it isn't just so the actor hasn't done their lines or it doesn't look right there could be a technical fault or a boom mic visible or, or I, I doubt there's very many directors that do one or two three takes and get what they want exactly unless their bar's so low that they don't care and yeah there's many instances where where the actor gives them something that he didn't even know he was looking for until the actor did it mm. and so there's the amount there's the instances where there's a lot of improvisation which he learned from spartacus 
right from Lolita onwards, those moments of inspiration and um, improvisation that weren't there in the in in the screenplay drafts, such as they were. That that in a sense that people remember those moments from the film. You know, here's Johnny or um, singing in the rain um, amongst amongst um, other examples. Peter Sellers in Lolita, yeah, just get just getting the opportunity to go and riff and do stuff and create a character that doesn't really exist. Yeah, and 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 the best moment, and the moment I really like every time I watch Doctor Strange Love, I always tell audiences to look out for this when he's um, playing Doctor Strange Love and he's in in the wheelchair and um, he's strangling himself and then biting his fist to stop the fist from strangling himself. And if you look at Peter Ball's face, who's playing the um, uh, um, uh, Dasarsky, the Russian ambassador, you can completely tell that they didn't know this was going to happen and the look on peter i don't look at peter sellers anymore i look at peter <laughs> like a schoolboy a naughty schoolboy desperately trying not to laugh on camera which once seen you can't unsee um and it's moments like that uh, george c scott i mean this is my favorite kubrick film george c scott tripping up in the war room and he was meant to be called schmuck general buck schmuck and even though he he doesn't retain that name, he very much plays like one. And that tripping up, which Kubrick left in, um, just plays to that to that image. So there's something about the working um, environment that he creates that these moments come out and he keeps them. So because he's not as, as much as he could be authoritarian, he wasn't dictatorial. Was there was there a film? I mean, you just mentioned that Strange Love is your your favorite, but was there a film that you that you changed your view of as you went through the biography that you that is putting everything in context and look and doing your doing the research and looking at the background and how uh, is there a film that you either had more appreciation of or, or changed your critical view of? As a result of the of the the years spent working on the biography, yeah, I think for me, the killing, mm. sort of a film that I've always liked, but my estimation of it has grown. How so? Because I'm really fascinated by the films of the fifties. Wrote a book about them, and the killing is so much a part of what was being made in terms of low budget films, and at the same time, bears the stamp of something different. It's right. like and unlike um, a 50s gangster film, a 50s heist film. It's interesting because all of the faces and all the actors in The Killing are familiar. They are, for the most part, actors who've appeared in dozens of films of the period and, and, and earlier. They're familiar faces, and yet they're doing unfamiliar things. I find the time scheme and the uh, the mix-up, the breaking of, uh, of of linear narrative, fascinating. Um, which the studio obviously hated, and which at one time, in the process, Kubrick and Harris tried to straighten it out to make a linear film, a linear narrative, and they found it just didn't work. So they added the narrator and. The narrator for a long time for me seemed to me in a, uh, seemed to be an intrusion. But as Nathan has pointed out, the narrator narrator is often uh, wrong and misleading. So this is the misdirection that that Nathan talks about so often in terms of uh, of Kubrick's films. The Killing is also it's a film of the cultural moment. It's a f- film that shows that Kubrick was absorbing. Um, the early moments of uh, existentialism that were uh, seeping into uh, into American culture and something that would remain with him. Um, so Kubrick is very much a child of the 50s 
his um, his devotion to existentialism, to Freudianism, to Viennese literature um, stays with him throughout his career. And the killing is just a kind of thumbprint that marks um, the beginning of all of this. Yeah, the the thing about the voiceover, I I'd never, I I'll have to rewatch it because it's something I'd never cottoned onto. The unreliable narrator, Nathan. Yeah, he I think he, on that point, but um, he he left that in deliberately to annoy um, the studio, um, who insisted on having one in the first place. You know, and and that's the story, one of the stories. But I think it, like Bob said, it plays into that kind of Kubrickian sense of humor. Well, you know what? Let's have a narrator that if you actually follow closely. Um, it won't add up. But he also knew that people wouldn't. I mean, how many times have I watched that film and I, I wouldn't have picked up on the timeline unless I'd read it somewhere? For me, I mean, it's the films of the 50s that have grown on me in, in particular. I think Fear and Desire isn't as bad as people have made it out to be. There's a lot in that movie, a lot of techniques and, and other, you know, I, I, I teach bits of it for Soviet montage. Uh, amongst the other things, I think the use of doubles is very clever and and... Um, how how they're playing themselves and fits into the kind of some of the themes Bob's just talked about. You watch the boxing sequences in um, Fear and Desire, and you can see why that influenced um, Scorsese. Oh, in, in Killer's Kiss, you mean? Yeah, sorry, Killer's Kiss. Yeah, apologies. And you can see why that influenced um, Scorsese uh, for Raging Ball. I mean, some of those shots are brilliant. How he captures a fight in process, and you forget actually you're not you're watching a stage fight there's one point where i think he hits the camera or at least it looks like he's hitting the um he's it's a first, you know it's a sort of piece the camera with a punch a punch the camera you know obviously there's the killing and i watch that again with the students and you just pick up on little things and one of the little ironies to, to use bob's phrase um that i noticed this time round was as um johnny clay's at the check-in desk trying to get all that money in the bag and the What's framed are the words uh, from American Airlines is the Rica, which means rich in Spanish. And it's a lovely frame because that's a that's what Johnny thinks he is. And that's about the opposite of what he's about to become. Um, and there's the little, you know, is it intentional? Is it otherwise? It doesn't matter because the film sustained this level of reading and then Pars of Glory. I mean, there's so many moments in that. And the moment for me that I love in Pars of Glory is that the sparks, the action is when the two generals are having a conversation about taking the anthill. And you've got this lovely kind of deep focus and swirling camera work. And it's when the, the sort of inferior general, the, the lower ranked general, refuses the offer of a drink and then uh, or when the when his superior refuses a drink sorry that the lower rank general realizes he's messed up and needs to take this anthill and it's such a tiny moment um he says he goes i i don't think i'll have that drink and then he twigs oh i need to um to get promoted to please this general i need to take the anthill it's a moment that you'll miss it it's at a very kubrickian moment that, that i think is consistent with his work that food and drink often motivates the action or is important in the action it's it's you know and everyone talks about the tracking shots that have been influential on Saving Private Ryan, and there are that you know, there's not to dispute any of that, but sometimes there's those little moments that just capture something. Actually, you know, like the Rika, like the boxing in, in in Killer's Kiss, like the refusal of the drink in in Pars of Glory, that that sometimes get overlooked by the bigger gestures. Also, the introduction to sociology on the bookshelf in um, the the prostitute's flat in uh, Eyes Wide Shut is always one of those jokes that I find. I mean. Uh, just brilliantly done and you just know 
you know it's there you know it's i mean and this uh to, to talk a little bit about the rewatchability of kubrick's films one of the films which gets most rewatched and most theorized and you talk talk about this quite a lot as well uh into is the shining you know the shining has so many and it's a it's a film that that's so maddening in so many ways because it kind of doesn't work and it kind of absolutely does it's almost it sort of seems to me to supersede its genre that it's you know we talk about elevated horror these days um which i think is a little bit of a sniffy term but the shining is 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 one of those films that that perhaps justifies it more than any other what was your what was your attitude to the shining going in well i many attitudes depending on when i saw it and the last time i saw it was fairly recently and it is a film of dread it's a film of imposing danger cosmic danger um i'm taken by the fact that and this is a whole other conversation about kubrick's use of music but the use of the ds irae the day of wrath theme that occurs at the beginning of um clockwork orange and also at the beginning of the shining the sense of ultimate doom that i think hung over kubrick i don't know if it hung over kubrick hung over kubrick's work the sense that things will end and end badly and the shining there's so much nonsense about the shining and maybe that's because what the shining is ultimately about is really scary uh scarier than than a a, a ordinary horror film it's about the ultimate end of things for me what really changed with the shining and take this how you want i i've said it quite a few times is once i became a father um i think i understood that film better mm. i mean there is definitely it's a film about white male privilege and entitlement and the sense of injustice when that entitlement and privilege is restricted and it's the moment where he's um making his point with a baseball bat um and and talking about responsibilities and i think he uses the word six times seven times and i'm, I'm not going to say <laughs> there's empathy there but i began to understand that film much more with that shift in my life i think that's what's interesting about about these films that that as you change your readings of the films change and when you teach these films the new students coming in different generation different influences maybe they know kubrick maybe they don't their views of it change and their views change your views because they see things you haven't seen um just as maybe we've seen things they haven't seen and i think that's what's fascinating about this process and again i mean even we we talked about Eyes Wide Shut earlier. Well, I just learned recently, so here's to pick up on your example there, John, is that um, the version of introducing sociology was a British edition. So even stranger, um, probably an error, um, because the sex worker was to be an NYU student in sociology. But someone's written a whole article on that on this fact, um, an academic article, no less. Not you know, Bob might see it as a cranky theory, but it's not one of the room two three seven cranky theories. Um, it's an academic theory on the fact that it's the British version of introducing sociology that we see in Eyes Wide Shut. And I think few make fil few filmmakers sustain this level of reading. And the one other film I want to add that in terms of really changing seeing on the big screen is Barry Lyndon. I challenge my students, I say, you go watch Barry Lyndon on a big screen and you come out and tell me 
if if you still think Kubrick's a cold filmmaker. Because if I think anyone who thinks Kubrick's a cold filmmaker after watching Barry Lyndon, then they don't have any emotions themselves. <laughs> and interestingly enough, at the end of my course, I asked the students to rank the films. And Barry Lyndon, I mean, not, by no means unanimously, featured high or top on a lot of them. I liked it as a testament to my browbeating, but I think, <laughs> I, I, I think they, they came to that conclusion themselves. And, you know, when you see Barry crying on that big screen, how can you not be moved? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the words of the narrator, which are often so frequently framed as a sort of uh, alienating device, are actually, you know, you can say what you like about Barry Lyndon, but he loved his son. You know, incredibly moving. Um, speaking of family, uh, we were talking earlier about how, um, Bob, you were sort of frustrated in the early 80s about uh, making the bio writing the biography by um, the the limited the lack of access or being denied access. Uh, what, how was it in terms of going back and doing it? Did, did you have uh, opportunities to interview the family? How how do they feel about the biography? How did it go this time round? We um, interviewed his daughter, Katerina, mm -hmm. um, and we had uh, many conversations through email and, and, and in person with uh, Jan Harlan, his, uh, his brother-in-law. And Jan was very helpful in correcting mistakes. He was sometimes a little pushy in wanting us to say things that um, we had either not thought of or didn't think were as important as he did. So we tried to compromise with him. The, uh, the estate was helpful in getting photographs that appear in the book. So yes, we had a lot of a lot of interchange. Both of us, on separate occasions, have visited um, Childersbury and seen the uh, interiors and the enormous kitchen. We've seen the grave site, and uh, all very moving. So you got more of a sense of the, a sense yeah. of the man as, as yeah. you got you sort of got to know him, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, just to as a caveat to what Bob said, I mean, whilst we had assistance from the family, this isn't a um, an official biography, and it, you know, we weren't constrained in what we said just because we worked with members of the family and others who were part of the kind of Kubrick, Kubrick circle. And I think it's really talking to that range of individuals, whether it's from the family members through to the creatives who worked with him maybe once, through to those who worked with him twice or, or, or had a consistent working pattern like Julian Senior. Um, the late Julian Cena, Bob's mentioned, or, or, or Tony Froen, you get a sense of the human beneath some of the mythology. That this, this, there was a film director, and as a film director and a boss, he could be one person. And then there's the Kubrick at home with his family, you know, with his wife, with his daughters. Um, he was a brother, you know, he was a son, and and then how he was with his friends or with the people he worked with when they weren't on the set. You know, mm. he said he was a different human being. And I think what I hope our book has achieved is to give a sense of the different Kubricks, that depending on the context. Not quite quilty, although, you know, I I did write an academic article years ago um, comparing Kubrick to Quilty, um, that Quilty's Kubrick's double. But, but, you know, not just this monolithic monster that had no consideration for the feelings of others. Um, I think people, and it goes back to something I said to you earlier, is that, People are selective about the evidence they choose to support the theory that they wish to have about Kubrick. And mm -hmm. as much as we might come from a more positive point of view, we did try to paint the warts and all picture, give two sides to the story. The story of Dorian Harewood is instructive. You know, Dorian Harewood wanted to leave early and he felt Kubrick punished him by killing him off his character 
early in the film and then in full metal jacket this is yeah full metal jacket yeah he played um it's able and um he says that kubrick made him do this grueling shot running with a machine gun through all the bullets you know multiple times and um to punish him and then we we spoke to Jan Hall, and Jan Hall said, "Well, it's absurd. Kubrick would make him do that multiple times. You know how expensive it is to put all those squibs in the wall and do the setup. And then you think about it, and you're like, yeah, even if he had a vindictive streak, that would have been undermined by the cost. Yeah. And so we gave the story. We said, this is how Dorian Hayward sees it. Um, and yet, yeah, probably the the truth of the matter is he did kill the character off early, so that so 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 he could be released from his contract." Um, but probably not quite in the fashion that he recalls it, because, you know, the Kubrick of legendary multiple takes is a convenient um, brush to paint the picture with to it there. But the Kubrick we knew was the one who loved insurance claims and was always trying to save a bit of money here and there. So I don't think he would have. That would have been a three day setup, probably. I, I loved the insurance claims. I loved that. That was something I'd never heard before. And it was hilarious. We learned that through multiple uh, interviews with um one of uh, the Warner Brothers lawyers who worked closely with uh, with Kubrick and just filled in the most wonderful details of the working and the personal life and the uh, absolutely legitimate use of, uh, of insurance claims to buy time um, and get things in order was a wonderful revelation. Well, what are, were, were there any other revelations? I mean, there's so many in the book that it's a, it's a little bit putting you on the spot to ask. But were there any other revelations that you just thought, oh, well, oh, that's a, that's a beauty. That's that's something I love. Um, uh, that that's going straight in the book. That's a tough one to answer because I'd rather hear what you thought. Um, <laughs> the one the one little discovery I, I I this is the one I pick on. And it's a tiny little thing, again, like that moment in Paths of Glory. There was a little note in the archive. There's new material was deposited from the 40s, um, you know, the 40s and the 50s. These are the period that probably there's the least written about Kubrick. It's the darkest period in a way, not not psychologically, just in terms of what we know. And in in amongst the stuff that Kubrick had kept was this little note of um, how, of the internal mechanism of the camera he was using on Fear and Desire. And I mean Fear and Desire this time. And, and how the tape, uh, the, the film threads through the spools and he'd written underneath in capital letters, uh, oil every 1,000 feet, ask about that, you know, to the camera guy who was loaning him the, um, the, the, the equipment. And you just think, well, you know, the director that used push processing on um, Eyes Wide Shut or front projection on, on, on 2001, that innovated so many techniques. Um, he might not have created the Steadicam, but he pushed its use in The Shining. That's where everything begins, is this tiny little note asking about oiling a Camry every thousand feet. Feet. And and that was kind of the acorn of um, uh, 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 it's tempting to say the rosebud, but um, the, the, <laughs> the uh, you know the Kubrick that people understand came from that. There wasn't always that Kubrick that we know now. He had to learn along the way. So I think the revelation for me was interestingly enough no revelation that what I learned was the Kubrick that I had somehow always known, but never articulated as well as we did in the book. Um, this was the the, uh, the man in full, and um, all those little parts, the oiling of the, of the, uh, of the camera, the, uh, the infinite number of photographs that he took for Look Magazine, the stories, the desperate stories that he jotted 
during his uh, unhappy Greenwich Village days. They were all of a piece of what was ultimately an artist who was relatively at peace in the last period of his life, settled in the British countryside, making the films that he wanted to make, not making the films that he didn't or couldn't make, um, surrounded family by family and who knows how many cats and many, many dogs, and at play and in contention with his daughters, um, living with a wife that must have been the most understanding person in the world and who managed by living her own life as a painter. All of these just fit in and felt, for me, very comfortable. Non-revelatory, but positing an image, a complex image, that was in the end very satisfying. It's like a sort of affirmation of your of your admiration. That it's not yes. like oh, there's no clay feet here, or there's nothing that that I'm going to sort of go. Oh, I wish I hadn't. I didn't know that. Finally, I was wondering about the. I mean, you talk about the legacy of Kubrick in the latter part of the book, and it's fascinating to look at things that have gone on. Ridley Scott's just made a Napoleon, which was, which, you know, has to be seen to some degree in the context of Kubrick's unmade Napoleon. There's a TV series posited about Napoleon produced by Steven Spielberg. Of these sort of unproduced projects, what is there any, are there any of them that you think of as kind of a loss or, or do you think, no, if he had done that, we wouldn't have had Clockwork Orange or if he'd done Napoleon, we wouldn't have had Barry Lyndon. And are there any sort of, um, any of those projects that you really think, oh, the world, the world would have been a richer place if that existed or, or are you at peace with it as, as you described Kubrick being? Well, I mean, you can't make up what not there, obviously, but you know, if, if if we if we had AI or Aryan papers, there would be no eyes wide shut. There might have been an eyes wide shut. I I would have been intrigued to see what Kubrick's Holocaust film. Um, I think it's just come out and it's the zone of interest. Um, had he had the opportunity, obviously that book wasn't written when when he was alive. Um, but the the path not taken film would be Burning Secrets because that was with MGM as a kind of studio product. They were under contract to the studio, working in the studio. Um, it wasn't like they had the project and the studio was financing the project. It was it came out of their contract to work for MGM. And, you know, there's some counterfactual supposition that their careers, because it was James B. Harris as well, might have gone in a different direction. Um, whether Kubrick would have lasted at MGM, I mean, that's an interesting question. You know, probably would have got himself fired anyway in the way that he did with Marlon Brando a few years later. Um, but not on Spartacus, funny enough. Um, mm. managed, to, managed to hem it in there. You know, his career would have gone in a completely different direction. And just as, you know, there's this tendency and there's at least one book that does this it goes from Parza glory to lolita had kubrick not done spartacus yeah he might have stayed in la but he wouldn't have been the one we understand him to be mm. and we might not have had those later films i think there's a there's a wish on the part of some critics and scholars as if they could overlook spartacus and and that the trajectory would have continued anyway i mean true he was working on lolita before he he, he got called to spartacus but i think the 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 stylistic director and the director working with actors would have changed, might not have moved to England. So I think there's these critical junctures that there could be a counter, I mean, a good novel material. What if Kubrick had stayed at MGM? What if Kubrick hadn't done Spartacus? 
I think that I think those are more crucial than what if he had made um, Aryan Papers. I'd just be intrigued to see what he would have done with that material, how he would have handled some of the problems of of the the, the, the deep problems of of putting the Holocaust on film, but also his own issues with his own background, and how that would have come up. And um, for Aryan Papers, um, I st- you know had he been healthy, I still think he would have done Eyes Wide Shut, um, because that was the one, you know that was the one he was always working on right for 50 years as we argued in our book um and that's ultimately why it was his last film probably mm. the culmination of his filmmaking career and it's interesting i mean continuing with legacy it's interesting you say zone of interest because there are a series of directors who you know get the adjective christopher nolan's one um paul thomas anderson sometimes get you know who 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 I mean, it seems to be a shorthand for every, anybody. Who, oh, Yorgos Lanthimos! I just saw somebody was doing a season of his films in Amsterdam, and the trailer had the Full Metal Jacket font all the way through for his films. I mean, there is a, a an undeniable sort of continuing in a in a way that say someone like say Francis Ford Coppola, who's still alive and still still working and everything hasn't necessarily had that. It's not like you'd look at a young filmmaker and say, oh, this is a very Francis Ford Coppola film, or this is a very William Friedkin film, you know? Um, Kubrick seems to have a really lasting imprimatur, you know, if that's a word that I haven't just made up. The example I always pick there, I mean, for me, the closest, Jonathan Glazer is one of them because yeah. he... Well, he, he, how does he put it? I don't so much steal from him as pick his pocket, uh, Glazer said. But there's lots of other similarities. The other one's Darren Aronofsky, for me, the two closest. But yeah, the, the, I, I think the issue is, is how many bad Kubrick films are there, right? But I bet we could sit here and have a big, long list of bad Coppola, bad Scorsese, bad um, Nolan, bad um, Ridley Scott films, despite the, the you know groundbreaking ones in between. And that dampens the overall reputation, doesn't it? You know, Kubrick, there's always that sense. And I think you hinted at it earlier and that... The, you know, had he been less irritating in his working process, we might have had more films. But if we'd had more films, they possibly wouldn't have been as good. Yeah, they would have been Jack with Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to throw me there. But, you know, there's this, <laughs> you know, it, it dampens the reputation, doesn't it? Woody Allen, you know, all right, for different reasons, but... There's been so many of not of less than stellar quality that it, it's taken away from the overall reputation. And I think Kubrick did so few that it's hard to use that against him. And even the films are, I mean, it, that becomes a constant thing as you go through the book is how this film is is received in a certain way and it's not received particularly well. And, you know, even 2001 Space Odyssey, you made the point earlier. And then, at, then usually the French love it and... Finally, we all love it. You know, there's, there's no resisting that that staying power. And what, as Bob was saying earlier, that you know, it's built into the films. It's it's about that meticulousness that makes you want to go back and revisit them a thousand times. You know, despite that number of films that he's made, I've, I've probably watched him more than any other filmmaker. A final question for both of you. This is something I ask all my guests on Writers on Film, which is a, a film book recommend, recommendation for listeners. Something to send them off in any any direction any direction you like really i know it's a it's a toughie but um i also uh, don't necessarily limit it to just one bob you like to go first i'm at a loss i must say i've not been reading a lot of film books and um 
nothing comes to mind that's funny because last time you had one and i didn't and now this time i've got one and you don't i can't remember who you said last time we we, we you we were asked this question i'll fill in about for me um okay. joseph mcbride's um biography of steven spielberg the new edition it's 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 really well researched really thorough loads of um references um, just just to give you one little factoid that it answers another question, maybe give time Bob time to think, is there was one in the relationship between Spielberg and Kubrick. It was reported it was reported that Kubrick always called Spielberg direct uh, collect. Sorry, um, reverse charges as we say in the UK. And Jan Harlan was like, why would he do that? He's got he's got his own money. Why that's this is absurd. It's made up. So I was like, right, well I'm going to dig through the sources for this one. And it was quoted in um, Joseph McBride's book. So I contacted Joe and, and said, "Can you can can you can you find me the source for this?" And he sent me all the material, and I looked through, and it was something Spielberg had said in an interview. So this is an interesting <laughs> thing. I mean, this is the level of detail, you know, that the book has, but obviously helped us with with AI, with the stuff on AI in particular. And you know, we we had to reconcile this. Like Spielberg says, it probably happened. Why would he make that up? They're mates. And Jan Arnold's like, no, no, this wouldn't have happened. So, yeah, there's my recommendations. Because some of I the have one. Um, Glenn Frankel's making of uh, Midnight Cowboy um, is a fine piece of cultural as well as cinematic criticism. Both writers who have been on Writers on Film, and, and yeah, Glenn's book is, is amazing. I haven't read Joe's book on... Steven Spielberg. So I'll have to I'll have to put that on my list because that's I love the idea of reversing the charges as well, Colin Collect, because that they're having like 10-hour conversations as well. So that is not even for ver for very rich people, that is still quite a significant <laughs> chunk of phone bill right there. I liked Bob's explanation. He said, um <laughs> forgive me if I'm misquoting you, in which case I'll claim it as my own, but I'm sure Bob said um yeah, probably Kubrick, the nudnik, was there going, you know what, the Hollywood wonder kid, he can pay for the call. He earns so much money. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, yeah, that probably is what happened. Yeah, yeah, he's he, he's picking up the bill. He's He'll pay. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, he's making so much money off E.T. He's making so much money off... Uh, uh, um, what, you know Jurassic Park. He can he can pay for the call. I thought that was a that was an elegant um, solution <laughs> to this. Uh, uh, um, well, he did it. He didn't do it. Um, um, scenario. Maybe in the next edition we can put that little gloss in there, because <laughs> um, it really does speak to that 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 sense of humor Kubrick had. Um, yeah, that's yeah. something that everybody talks about as well. That's one of those human things. I, you were asking me earlier what surprised me about the uh, about Kubrick or what came through that I hadn't considered. It was that sense of daily humor, that sense of people talking about how much fun he was to work for as well, and not just. Uh, you know the the nightmare or the monster or the you know the legend but he was just kind of fun he was kind of uh and, and that really came through the biography yeah i mean jan harlan i remember him once telling me you know you would have liked him and and i think to which i wanted to say uh but jan would you have liked me yeah, <laughs> Definitely, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Thank you guys so much, Nathan and Robert Kolker. Nathan Abrams and Robert Kolker, thanks for uh, being on Writers on Film. Thank you. Thank you.
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.